Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the start of a brand new week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have you with us. I think most of you who listen to the show pretty regularly know that um, I send out an email to the people who are going to be on the show the following day, saying to them, here are the topics I'm thinking I'd like to talk about. Uh, if you've got any other ideas, let me know. Uh, and uh, you've probably also heard me say before, I always send out too many ideas <laughs> and then add more when uh, the morning arrives. And that's the case today. We have an awful lot to talk about. We'll get to as much as we possibly can. So let's get right to the panel. We're joined as we are on every Monday by the AJC political reporter and columnist, Patricia Murphy. You read her Political Insider column on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper. And Patricia oversees The Jolt, which appears every morning at AJC.com. And Patricia, as if we don't have enough to talk about, when I read The Jolt uh, this morning, I was it, it, it was astonishing to me to see your item on what's happening in the 14th district congressional race. So we got a lot of other things to talk about, but at least make some mention of what the heck is going on in that race. Well, I'm sorry to throw it on your pile, Bill, because we have a lot to talk about. (laughs) Um, But yes, the amount of fundraising happening up there in the 14th district, that is Marjorie Taylor Greene's um, mostly rural district, but also includes, um, of course, Rome, Dalton, and now uh, parts of West Cobb County. Um, she has raised more than $10 million for her race, and her Democratic challenger has raised more than $9 million for his race. And these are the numbers that we really typically see in a governor's race. So it's been really quite astonishing, and that's definitely something to keep our eyes on. And we, of course, are doing that right now. It's, it's staggering. One of the things, not only have they raised that money, but I was also uh, astonished that Marcus Flowers, you report, has already spent basically $10 million yeah. on the race, and Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene, $8 million. Unbelievable. We'll be talking more about that, no question, as the uh, weeks go on. Uh, we're also delighted to uh, have with us again today Kurt Young. He is the chairman of the political science department and a political science professor at Clark Atlanta University. Kurt, you're having a busy summer. I'm always glad you can take time to be with us. And, and listening to the, well, looking at the list of items and listening to the show's introduction, there's a whole lot to talk about. So I'm happy to be here. Okay, thank you. Renee Alegria, CEO of Mundo Hispanico Digital, is back with us. Renee, you have been very busy this summer because you've done a rebrand with Mundo Hispanico Digital. And I said to you before the show went on, the new website looks just great. It's very bold. It's colorful. Uh, congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah, we, uh, we, we changed the name and focus of our platform to Mundo Now. Uh, in an effort to to connect with uh, bilingual, bicultural uh, Hispanics, which there's uh, not a lot of information that targets 
that segment. And we've seen a, just a, a huge demographic shift within the Hispanic community uh, that the census uh, really pointed to, which deems 28% of the overall Hispanic uh, population is, is Spanish language dominant, whereas 55% and over is English language preferred. And they're not getting there. The way that media is structured, the way that the marketing, the ad business is structured, uh, English dominant Latinos are be, get, being ignored. And as a result, uh, you see a lot of uh, very interesting things happen economically and politically. So that's who we're we're focused on. Wow, that is really interesting. I appreciate your uh, telling us about that. And we're going to talk a little bit more. I hope we'll get to it during the show today about whether there are any changes going on with Hispanic voters in this uh, country and in this state as well. But Patricia, let's start with a blockbuster story that developed late last week and into the weekend. Um, the Fawny Willis special grand jury investigating uh, the efforts to overturn the results of the election is ongoing. And now uh, the DA's office has sent essentially target letters to Burt Jones, who is obviously the Republican candidate for lieutenant governor, uh, to uh, Brandon Beach, a prominent uh, state senator from up in uh, Alpharetta, and to David Schaefer, the chair of the state party. And by that, we mean to say she is alerting them that they could stand, uh, uh, could be subject to criminal charges for their involvement with this fake slate of electors, correct? That's right. And this is significant for many, many reasons. Um, we have seen a parade of uh, familiar names and faces going into the special grand jury to testify and share what they know about the 2020 elections as a part of this probe that is largely about Donald Trump. But the fact that, um, that these two gentlemen, Burt Jones and uh, GOP Chair David Schaefer, have received these letters lets us know they are different from the rest right now. We didn't know why people were going in front of the grand jury. Now we know that some people are going in to give information. Other people now are going to be the target of that investigation, not just Donald Trump. It also tells us that they may have found enough to consider this entire enterprise to be a criminal enterprise, and that's important oh, as wait. well. Okay, I'm so, then I have to be careful. Did I misstate that Brandon Beach also got a target letter? Uh, as far as I know so far, it's David Schaefer and Burt Jones. Okay, I, then I apologize. I, let me take that back. But I thought let, it was the let three me of them, say, and I'm very sorry. I don't know all things, so let me, let me also do a quick check. I'll run, <laughs> I'll run it past our team while we're talking, just to double check. Yeah. Yeah, we should say that Yahoo News broke this story uh, initially, and uh, and then of course uh, the um, the story was followed up immediately by Patricia and her uh, colleagues. And I'm looking now at the initial Yahoo story, and I'll kind of go through it as we move forward. But but Kurt, uh, while I check that out, um, uh, well, no, according to this, this this these sources have told Yahoo News target letters were sent to Burt Jones. Uh, David Schaefer, and Brandon Beach. Now, I should say, and, and Kurt, I'll turn it over to you when I when I finish mm -hmm. this, that Brandon Beach was not part of that slate, he, but he has been investigated for his involvement in trying to help, I guess, communications between whoever it was in Washington and the Georgia uh, 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 Republicans who were involved in this make all of this 
happened. So that's according to Yahoo who, News, and um, we'll, we'll stay on top of it. But Kurt, your thoughts about this? Well, you know, a lot of the national attention right now, especially over the summer, was on, is on, I should say, is on the uh, January, January 6th committee, special committee, who looking at uh, various aspects of this entire uh, uh, issue. What is not so uh, visible nationwide is what's happening at the state level now. Of course, because of the importance of the state of Georgia, Georgia will uh, um, rise in the profile in terms of the, the uh, intricacies of the case. But as the states become more and more focused, or come into more focus in this, uh, uh, um, in this uh, issue, what you find, Bill, is that a lot of the reluctance, or at least what appears to be the reluctance at the federal level under the Attorney General uh, Garland, uh, to move aggressively forward um, will not necessarily be reflected in what's happening at the states. Uh, of course, Fannie Willis is, is moving along, as, as uh, Patricia just mentioned, with the uh, special grand jury. Uh, we assume that because it's a special grand jury, the uh, grand jury, uh, um, traditional grand jury, what happens will, will follow that, um, especially with these uh, letters going out. But I, I think what we're seeing here is that the activities at the state level, and of course we have yet to see what happens in Michigan and Arizona and some of the other states, um, will may, may, may in fact eclipse what's happening uh, as the January 6th uh, hearings wind down and then become, begin to take more uh, focus nationally. Um, Renee, I, th- I think I'm correct in saying that members of the January 6th committee, uh, members of the House who are on that committee, have sent somewhat mixed signals about whether they think that criminal referrals should come out of their hearings. Some think yes, others are being a little bit more ambivalent about that. And that's one of the reasons I think that there's so much national attention on Fonnie Willis's investigation, because until DOJ, which now says they're going to ramp up and add uh, 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 resources to investigate what the January 6th committee is sharing with them, up until that starts taking place, all the potential criminal action is happening in Fulton County. Yeah, it's it's really amazing how, and and, and not surprising, right, how uh, Georgia is the center. Uh, and it's the focal point, and it will become more and more a primary character in the involvement of uh, Georgia as a national political player. I, I do, you know, the gears of justice, they, they may move like, uh, like molasses, right, but they certainly move. And we're seeing that play out uh, with, uh, with Willis's subpoenas and, and the letters that she's sending. I, I do think that you're right that there are some mixed signals from the January 6th committee. Uh, and the whole thing is just fraught with, with so much uh, tension and suspense, right? Uh, what is going to happen? Who, who is going to be ultimately indicted on criminal charges? I, I, I can't help but think that in the re- recent days, um, the, the Secret Service deleting messages on from January 5th and 6th, of course, right? And the attempt to retrieve those messages, which are underway, uh, helps to highlight again, just what occurred then and how it rippled down through and into local elections vis-a-vis Georgia, right? Um, there's a lot going on. There's a lot yet to, to be discovered. Uh, and again, Georgia's role in it is, is front center. 
Patricia, uh, of course, Burt Jones has already responded through his lawyers to this. They are saying that Fonnie Willis uh, should be recused from having any involvement uh, uh, in his in any possible uh, action against him. And they cite as a reason for that the fact that Willis hosted a fundraiser for Jones, lieutenant governor opponent, Democrat Charlie Bailey, uh, the quote is, this is clearly a politically motivated attack from the same district attorney who just weeks ago hosted a political fundraiser for Byrd's opponent. Byrd is more than happy to perform his civic duty and answer questions, but not from a prosecutor with such blatant conflicts of interest. Uh, Patricia, it, how do we react to the fact that, that Willis, she's a political animal in that role, she is over and over again said she doesn't want politics to interfere. Uh, she has said she will stop if they're still uh, investigating with a special grand jury as the election approaches. They'll shut down issuing subpoenas because she doesn't want it to become more political. This does feel a little political the way that Burt Jones and his people are framing it. Yeah, well, I think that they do see it as political. Um, Bonnie Willis and Charlie Bailey have known each other for years. They were both mm. assistant district attorney, district attorneys rather, in Paul Howard's office. So they have this longtime pre-existing relationship. Um, so she had indeed hosted a fundraiser for Bailey and then several weeks later came out with this letter to Jones. Um, that certainly does not change Jones's role in 2020 and what he did in 2020 in terms of um, being a very central figure in the stop the steal efforts for um, uh, for Donald Trump um, acting as a fake elector, also uh, really acting in a lot of ways with Brandon Beach as a point person on the Senate committees, having um, uh, Rudy Giuliani come in to testify. There certainly was a lot of Senate activity on uh, with with that entire. Uh, uh, I don't call it a scheme, but that entire effort by Donald Trump's team to come to Georgia, hold these hearings, and really move the ball forward on his efforts to overturn the Georgia election. Um, so it uh, doesn't change those details, but Willis's role as somebody who is an elected official, an elected Democrat, she says very frequently her boss are the voters of Fulton County every election cycle and um, uh, is an active Democrat and active enough to be hosting fundraisers for people in the state. And so it is a sort of a dual role that she's holding, and it really is up to her to balance those two roles as she goes forward with this very, very high-profile investigation. Um, one note I wanted to add is that um, I did check in with our team uh, covering the Fulton County Grand Jury and although Yahoo News has reported that Brandon Beach has gotten a target letter, we have not been able to confirm that with Brandon Beach. He's not um, responding to any requests about this right now. So we know for sure about Jones and Schaefer and Brandon Beach is something we haven't confirmed yet. I really appreciate your uh, checking that and for adding that element to our conversation today. Um, you're right. Uh, initially, we have the report just from Yahoo News confirming it through the sources they claim to have had on it. Uh, I love real-time checks on, real fact checks on this show in real time, so uh, thank you for doing that. Um, <laughs> uh, Renee, uh, I under, everything that Patricia said seems absolutely correct in terms of Fonnie Willis having to be careful in the way she balances this investigation against whatever political interest she has moving forward. Um, nevertheless, 
uh, it is going to add to the perception among those who want to see this as political that it is political. Republicans are, you know, beyond their guard, and it's conceivable that Burt Jones uh, will find a way, depending on what happens to him, to mobilize his people as a response to what he's calling a political witch hunt, essentially. Sure. Well, well, of course he's going to say that, and of course, you know that that's kind of the uh, the rebuttal, right? That all of it is politics. That all of it is is skewed. That one party elected by you know one party is is instantly against and the foil to the other. It's a very jaded perception that unfortunately has uh, filtered in and around everything we breathe with when it comes to our elected officials. I, I can't help but think that, you know, of the double standard though here, right? I mean, remember Hillary Clinton's email um, that never really uh, materialized into anything other than a lot of talk, talk, talk. Well, here we have multiple indictments, multiple fronts wherein which the Republican Party uh, find themselves on their heels, and yet they're screaming uh, political skewed injustice of the system. And I, I can't help but think that those who, are, who educate themselves when, when it comes to who they're voting for and the issues on, will will have uh, some thoughts when they get to the polls. Yeah, I was gonna, I was going to make some of those exact same points, uh, Renee raised. But you know, Bill, it's like it's like taking out a water pistol and using it to try to fight off a, a blazing fire. Um, under normal circumstances, I suppose uh, those kind of political uh, uh, counter plays would work to kind of dis, dis, uh, delegitimize uh, um, uh, a, a case like this. Um, but I tell you what, what's different this time. What's different this time is that it seems as if, and we don't have all the details. It seems as, as if the legal mountain is growing, and if there, if we find that there's serious criminality taking place here, Patricia mentioned this a moment ago taking place here. This, this uh, uh, raising of this political question uh, really would become insignificant. Perhaps it will mobilize the base, but I don't think that there's anything that's going to be able to um, mobilize the uh, base in a state that's so clearly split down the middle. I don't know that there's anybody left, left to convince otherwise um, um, in terms of one party alignment or another, uh, an issue that's of some party uh, um, relevance or another. Um, but I, I think at the end of the day, what's going to what's going to uh, be most prominent here is the mountain of evidence that's growing. We assume around whether or not these uh, uh, electors attempt to uh, falsify uh, their role as 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 uh, alternate electors uh, is going to uh, stand up to any kind of political question um, or, or volleying back and forth. One one thing that I, I just want to add before we move on topics is is Bannon's. Uh, testimony. I, I think that he played a central role in whatever happened in however and whatever you believe. And since his time in the White House, he has just become more and more incendiary. And I do think that things are going to devolve into hot, hot, hot before they get any cooler. And what he says when it is 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 made public is going to be a very interesting uh, development. 
Well, I think um, in terms of accusations about um, people acting politically in their official capacities, I think it's important to remember that Burt Jones did get Donald Trump's endorsement for his lieutenant governor mm-hmm. bid after he did play those uh, central role in helping or help Donald Trump trying to um, overturn Georgia elections results. That nod from Donald Trump was hugely important in the lieutenant governor's race. And um, certainly we've heard from Democrats who have said if anybody was playing politics at that time, if, um, you know, around all of this, it uh, would have been Jones. So, Patricia, uh, let me ask one more questions about a question about th- this and then I want to talk a little more about other developments in, in the grand jury. Um, it, it does feel as though the, there is a synergy between what's happening in the January 6th committee hearings and the Fulton County grand jury. Uh, so what I mean by that is um, in, in one of the last hearings, we learned about the role that John Eastman was playing, one of Trump's uh, loyal uh, lawyers in trying to help him uh, overturn the results of the election. And we learned that it was Eastman who was at the center of this scheme in seven states to impanel uh, uh, the slates of fake electors, hoping that on January 6th, when Mike Pence was forced <laughs> to, by Trump to refuse to accept the Biden uh, electors, he would then have these uh, seven states fake electors. Uh, to draw from. Okay, so we learned that, and it was kind of a staggering uh, a scenario. And it does play back to why we now think of the uh, this f- fake elector slate in Georgia as being part of such a dark scheme. Yes, I think that when we were all covering the events here in Georgia, first of all, we were so sort of overwhelmed by the just sheer volume of, um, of events happening. It was hard to even parse it out locally here in the state. And now with these January 6th hearings, you can step back and say, oh my goodness, the things that were happening in Georgia were not a coincidence. The fact that John Eastman popped up at this uh, Senate hearing uh, held by Trump loyalists to talk about uh, the 2020 elections, the fact that there was this group of Republicans meeting in the Capitol the same day that the Democratic uh, uh, members were casting their electoral ballots in the state Capitol. None of these things were coincidental. They were happening simultaneously in selected states that Donald Trump and his team had identified to try and flip the results. And so you start to see not just a one-off, but a pattern and um, in, I'm sure, many people's retelling, a conspiracy. And so it's, it's just fascinating to see the January 6th hearings uh, broaden our own scope, kind of our own aperture. And then I think also we know that the January 6th um, committee is looking carefully at what's happening here in Fulton County as well, who's coming in, um, what might they know, uh, because all of this information is building upon itself in these parallel cases. Um, Renee, a couple of other developments that we're aware of now. Tamar Hellerman, uh, uh, Patricia's colleague at the AJC, has really been on top of this special grand jury from the start and has uh, really gotten a lot of good information out to us. She reported the other day that David Ralston, the Speaker of the Georgia House, has now testified in front of the special grand jury. And apparently one of the things they were interested in is a phone call he got from then-President Donald Trump uh, we don't know that Ralston's office says we respect the privacy and the secrecy of the grand jury proceedings, 
But we do know that um, Ralston essentially characterized the phone call, I think, uh, as um, uh, uh, collegial or uh, respectful or words to that effect. But so Ralston is now being there. He's another guy who got a phone call from the former president. Yeah, that, that's one call list that I certainly would not be on at this point. Um, uh, anyone who received a call from the president uh, then uh, is definitely of, uh, well, let's, let's just say that they're, they're, uh, they're having to speak to it now. And I, I, I do think that, again, we're, we're going to know so much more about all of this in the coming weeks. Um, and months, really. This is going to take so long to unfurl. What I do think is interesting here is that here there's a lot of, you know, noise. There's a lot going on. And what what effect does all of this have on key voting blocks, i.e. millennials, Gen Zs, uh, Latinos, you know, et cetera? Are we mm. tuning out? Are we tuning in? And I think those those are the questions that that are going to be certainly the answers to going to really take a take a toll as to how the midterms are going to be won or lost. I I want to be careful here uh, because Ralston was certainly not part to the, of any effort to encourage uh, the, the fake election that Trump was proposing uh, needed to mm-hmm. unfold here. Um, so it's likely he was there to answer questions, get give information. What did Trump say to him on the telephone? Uh, he he has said on this show now on several occasions that he had no interest in helping Donald Trump with his uh, scenario of a fake uh, election. Kurt, last word from you before we've got to get to a break. Well, in the middle of all of this that we're discussing is the unbelievable and and, and very uh, um, powerful point that the President of the United States picked up the phone and is recorded having a conversation where he's demanding <laughs> the exact number of votes that he needs uh, to win the election. As long as we have that in the middle of this conversation, uh, it, it's clear that the state of Georgia and all of the officials who are a part of any kind of discussion uh, will, be cut, will be brought to bear in, 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 the, in the investigations here. No, there's nowhere to hide because of how blatant that, that, uh, fo- that phone call is. And I wouldn't be surprised then if we see others uh, come out, especially as the, as the election, um, I'm sorry, the uh, investigation unfolds. Okay, we do have to get to a break. By the way, I found the quote. Uh, uh, Ralston uh, told a news outlet up in uh, his territory, up in North Georgia, fetch your news, uh, that it was a very pleasant quote, 15-minute conversation <laughs> with the former president. We'll be back in just a minute. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Kurt Young, Renee Alegria, Patricia Murphy with me for today's Political Rewind. Patricia, just briefly, another development in the uh, grand jury. Uh, Lindsey Graham, who lost an attempt to block the subpoena in Fulton County Court, uh, they said he had no protection, constitutional protection, as a member of Congress uh, that would uh, uh, allow him to skip 
testifying. He's now got his case being heard in federal court in his home state of South Carolina, where he's making the same claim. Uh, A judge up there, a federal judge, has stayed the subpoena while the case unfolds. So Lindsey Graham's not off the hook. He may eventually have to testify uh, to the calls he made to Brad Raffensperger, asking Raffensperger to look very carefully at those absentee ballots and make sure they were all actually legal. Yes, and Lindsey Graham has said that his role as the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee should shield him and give him uh, the leeway to call any election official he wants to call to see how their elections are going. Now, obviously, as a very close ally of Donald Trump and somebody who is uh, talking to Donald Trump throughout the Stop the Steal effort, um, it uh, to most people would seem like that was not related to the Senate Judiciary Committee. It was related to Donald Trump um, to call Raffensperger and uh, just casually inquire about all of the Um, the absentee ballots that Donald Trump was so furious about. Um, But we'll see what a federal judge does with that. We'll watch and uh, see how that unfolds. So again, uh, Fonnie Willis's special grand jury is uh, the center of a great deal of attention, not just here in Georgia, but uh, nationwide. Uh, Let's move on and talk a little bit about, well, you know what, um, Patricia, as a way to get into talking about the campaigns, one of the things that's kind of fascinating about all this is that all this unfolds around people like Burt Jones, uh, you know, and David Schaefer. Brian Kemp floats out there untouched by any of this. And it occurred to me this weekend, there's something kind of fascinating about that, Patricia. He avoided getting involved in this, and he has so far been able to rise above it, and it doesn't have any impact on who he is and what he's doing as a candidate, which accrues to his benefit, obviously. Yeah, you know, I actually think it does have an effect on him. Um, I think it strengthens him in November. I think yeah. that Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger both have um, really distinguished themselves, and I say that like they have literally set themselves apart from other Republicans running because they not only didn't get involved, they rejected Donald Trump's efforts over and over Mm -hmm. again, really a great political peril. I think we all thought that they were both um, sort of committing political suicide by going up against Donald Trump and not entertaining his efforts here in the state. And so, um, and they, uh, I think, were rewarded for that in the GOP primary. They were, um, we know certainly that they got votes of Democrats who um, crossed over to support both Kemp and Raffensperger in the primary because they um, wanted to at least be able to choose between their own Democratic nominee and one of those two instead of somebody who had instead helped Donald Trump uh, in the Stop the Steal efforts. And so um, I think there's just an unbelievable irony that by going after these two gentlemen so vocally and so viciously, Donald Trump may have inadvertently strengthened them in November because it's much harder for their their Democratic opponents to paint them as Trump cronies, to paint them as people who are only beholden to their party and not loyal to the laws of the state of Georgia. So it's been a real twist in the drama here in the state. Which, which really kind of raises raises an interesting question. Now, as, as Patricia was talking, I was just thinking, I wonder how long that would last uh, if Donald Trump decides to announce his um, his candidacy for for president. I'm wondering if he announces that sometime soon, or uh, he makes that announcement, might there be an impact that will 
again, mobilize his voters the way that uh, we saw in 2016. Um, but at the same time, uh, given his, his mean streak towards uh, um, Kemp, uh, convince his voters to, as they're mobilized, not vote for, uh, uh, for Kemp um, in the way that we saw unfold um, 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 with the senatorial uh, races in the state. Uh, just a kind of a thought, thought experiment there uh, in terms of pre- predicting what might happen. It seems as if, as, as we're reading the tea leaves, um, Donald Trump may be getting closer to <laughs> announcing his presidency as he gets closer and closer to indictment, uh, I imagine. Um, but uh, uh, just interested to see how that would play out at the state level. I think that's a fascinating line of thought. I also think it could be parsed in so many different ways. And you know what? In the weeks ahead, if Trump announces, which people are suggesting he's going to do soon, we'll be able to talk about all of it. You know, Patricia, well, no, let's move on because we've got a lot to talk about today. (laughs) Patricia, I want to continue with the governor's race. Um, As we all know, if we watch any television, the Kemp campaign has been hammering away at Stacey Abrams uh, for telling a CNN anchor that, yes, she believes that we should defund the police. And when you watch that clip, um, there is it, it does strike me that, to an extent, Stacey Abrams falls a little bit into a trap there. She starts in the right direction, saying we ought to have a reallocation of resources. And that's the way she's been describing it ever since the Republicans started attacking her for being anti-police. But then the anchor says, so you do think we should defund the police? And she says, yes. Um, so there's this, the camp, camp campaign spending a lot of money to attack her on a key issue, and now Abrams is fighting back. So take all of that on, and let's talk about it. Um, yes. So uh, anybody who watches that clip can see her just sort of, the anchor was just pushing her, pushing her, pushing her. So but so you do support it. And so she said, well, yes. Seconds later, she said, but I think it's a false choice. I don't think we need to choose between robustly funding the police and also having a criminal justice system that works for everybody and that does not um, uh, uh, racialize and scapegoat and wrongly go after and wrongly kill people um, who have not committed crimes. And so that was her long, much more intellectual, um, maybe even more intellectually honest answer. But in the context of a statewide campaign, all of that's out the door. And I've talked to Kemp's campaign about this, and they said, look, she said what she said. She was asked, would you defund? And she said yes. You know, so um, they are sticking by theirs. They're, they're saying it's not taking her words out of context. It's her words. Um, now, in order to um, uh, kind of add to that context, Stacey Abrams has been very aggressive in pushing out measures that she said would increase police funding, increase Um, salaries and bonuses for law enforcement officers and find a way to um, to uh, have uh, police forces who are well uh, well paid and well trained and that's her way to push back to add context to this because Democrats know that the concept of defunding the police which is not anything that any Georgia Democrats have been pushing um, is uh, is a real hot button and it's a real weakness. Uh, it doesn't pull well. It is damaging to their brand, um, at especially at a time when Georgians all over the state, not just in Atlanta, 
but in Macon, Columbus, Savannah are all struggling with um, really significant increases in violent crime, gang activity, murders. And so it's something that's on voters' minds. And Abrams' uh, team knows that she needs to get ahead of this and counter that ad. And Renee, she now has an ad, a direct-to-camera. She says, Brian Kemp is telling you this because he's afraid of me. He's afraid uh, uh, that I have uh, uh, answers to many of the issues that he is ducking. She says that during my time in the legislature, I worked to uh, increase funding for police to support law enforcement efforts across the state. And she closes it, as a lot of her ads do, with really that folksy personal touch saying, basically, my mom and dad taught me to tell the truth, and this is uh, the truth. Kemp's been uh, lying. Renee? Yeah, I, I think that her ad is very powerful. She's she's talking to her base. She's talking to anyone who uh, it may be, you know, affected by, by Kemp's advertising on that particular issue. And let's face it, Kemp is doing a good job uh, to, to kind of distract from so much of what's happening in the state um, that's, that's at stake that Abrams certainly has uh, a plan for, it seems. Uh, you know, the, the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court overturn has, has certainly done a lot to galvanize Democrats. And I do think that by having Abrams even address defunding the police, which she's made clear, uh, it was, you know, is, is not part of what she, uh, what her platform is, um, is, is, is getting her off her game. And I think that that is very affected by the Kim campaign. He's, he's running a great campaign. I mean, I think that anyone can see that uh, it, it's, it's working. And we, we discussed earlier uh, where he's floating above. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty astounding um, with, with what's going on. So it's, it's going to be interesting how her ad uh, is is perceived with her base and anybody that may be on the fringe. Kurt, get his final word in on this, please. Yeah, you know, there, there are two trajectories here, Bill, that, that, that comes to mind. Uh, we've talked about this a few other times. You know, I guess about 55 years ago, um, the um, Nixon administration made uh, at, the, at the core of its campaign uh, this law and order uh, um, uh, um, emphasis and that defined Republican Party politics for 50 years. Um, and what's been interesting has been the difficulty in the Democrats to have a response to that in a way that allows their voters who care about these uh, issues of crime, right? I, I can tell you, it's no secret. The, the other trajectory is that um, um, Abrams is dealing with something uh, that's not a secret. There is a constituency in her in the African-American community, she has various constituencies, but in, in the African-American community, that something has to be done with police reform. And some of that includes diverting funds, reallocating funds, for example, and I don't know how much of this occurred in the state, in the state of Georgia and in the city of Atlanta. I just haven't done the research, but there is this uh, a pattern of ex, uh, expenditures on military-type equipment for police, local police. Right, uh, and a diminishing of funds for community-based policing. Right, uh, that to me seems to be a logical place to discuss a reallocation of funds, and I'm sure that there are many, many others that I'm not thinking about right now. But that's a winning argument that uh, her base would respond to. But 
this kind of uh, uh, tumbling and flipping over her, her words in that in that uh, interview was very disappointing. It, it's, it's a reflection of a 50-year struggle. Now, the timing, I'll say this really quickly, Bill, because I know we want to shift. The timing is important now because if there's anything that we've learned from the January 6th uh, event um, has been that this position that the Republican Party assumed uh, as a uh, law and order pro-police position is vulnerable. It's, it's open for attack now, given what we saw occur and the willingness to just to, 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 to uh, assault police officers and delegitimize police officers uh, uh, at all levels of government in the context of an attempt to uh, overturn the election in favor of Donald Trump. Uh, it's open for a, a, um, um, a counter-argument, which just seems to be floundering from the Democratic Party. Kurt Young gets the last word before we got to take a break. When we come back, I want to sweep aside some of the other subjects that we had had in mind today and talk about two big themes, important themes. Patricia Murphy wrote a great column the other day on uh, inflation and its role, not just in this election, but in past elections. And Renee Alegria, uh, I want to ask uh, you uh, your sense of whether Hispanic voters are shifting to the right and looking at Republicans in a way they haven't before now. We'll talk about both of those after these messages. Patricia Murphy, Renee Allegria, and Kurt Young getting us off to a great start uh, with their conversation as we begin a new week on Political Rewind. Patricia, here's what you said in your column. We've got inflation at, at a 40 year high. Uh, it looks like we're going to get uh, the Federal Reserve is going to increase interest rates again. You've got Biden in the low 30s and his approval rating and more, uh, more things than that. And you say you've got a political dynamic so volatile that political watchers I spoke with likened this era to the Great Depression or the Civil War, which is really saying something. But you immediately go on to point out maybe what we should start looking at is 1978, when Jimmy Carter faced similar economic circumstances in a midterm election that year. Yes? Yes, exactly. I was trying to um, think to myself, what what time could we compare this to? Because it does feel... So overwhelming to look at the economic headlines right now. Um, Republicans who I've spoken with in D.C. feel like their chances in Georgia are excellent, even with Herschel Walker's campaign, solely because of gas prices and solely because of inflation. They're they're saying, listen, the national dynamic and these economic numbers are so devastating um, that voters are going to be looking for a change uh, no matter where it comes from. And so um, it is unlike a campaign, uh, unlike um, kind of the economics of any campaign I've covered um, in my own career. And so I went back to look and to think, when could we have experienced this and what lessons could we learn or what lessons could campaigns learn um, from how other people handled it. And so I went back to 78 because I feel like um, Jimmy Carter was a first-term Democratic president facing unbelievable economic headwinds. Um, And uh, Democrats lost seats in that midterm election under Jimmy Carter. They didn't lose those. Um, They did not lose the House and Senate, but they did did lose 15 seats in the House, three seats in the Senate. And it really set Ronald Reagan up to kind of come barreling in um, with an entirely different different economic message. And um, also was the year that Newt Gingrich was elected um, for the first time here in Georgia, that Bill Clinton was elected um, governor of Arkansas. And so it just sort of set up these three national 
names that we grew to know for years and years um, coming out of that sort of tumultuous time. And um, But when I reached out to, again, to historians, same people who worked on that 78 campaign, they said, no, I don't think that is that wasn't even a strong enough example. You need to go back to the Civil War to really think about the dynamics that this country is facing simultaneously right now, which I found really um, startling to hear. Um, but but also, uh, I, I do continue to think that people's just daily economic, just daily struggles, but also the fears for the future, you know, how much longer is this going to go on? Is this temporary? And how much longer can people kind of keep up with it before they start to really see a difference in their own um, ability to purchase and their own ability to really just plan for the future. Um, uh, Renee, uh, P- Patricia points out that Pat, Pat, Pat Cadell, who of course was uh, Carter's closest advisor, his pollster, uh, wrote that, that uh, Carter, this was in 1976, he wrote this, just telling people that uh, inflation is not a problem isn't going to do the trick. You'd better figure out a way to really alleviate fears of inflation, uh, Renee. And while Democrats did lose seats in that 1978 midterm, uh, it, it wasn't as much of a, of a gain as many people thought Republicans were going uh, to make. I don't know that that tells us anything about this year, since Patricia points out the times may be more dramatic, according to the people she talked to, than they were in 78. First of all, it's a great piece, uh, Patricia. Really kudos to how you framed it with the historical context. So awesome, awesome job. I, I, I do think that there is, uh, you, you kind of see an entire millennial generation and now Gen Z rolling their eyes because they've been in the muck of this economic downturn since 08 when they first started to graduate from college and hit the uh, the, the the job market when it comes when it comes to student debt uh, when it comes to just crazy real estate prices they've they've been living in this shadow world of this economic downturn for a while now and now that the inflation uh, is hitting peaks we're, we're seeing folks who have been largely sheltered from that now dealing with what they've been dealing with for again a good 12 15, 13 years um, and that's I think going to finally kind of change things to understanding what their plight and and how they're going to vote so just an interesting uh, dichotomy and in that you see the light being shined in an area where okay the rest of us have been dealing with this for so long, you know. Kurt, Kurt. You know, Bill, um, you add to everything that's been discussed there, the impact of COVID, and that we're still trying to figure out in this post-COVID moment, not not simply the human face and the impact of COVID, but the impact of COVID on the COVID, on the uh, global political economy, and the extent to which we are in a globalized economy, uh, although I think we overstate that for, for some, uh, sometimes, I think the economies have always been globalized to some extent. Um, but certainly we are in uh, new territory here with regard to, for example, the impact of COVID on on uh, supply lines, international supply lines and what have you, and how that manifests itself in, in, in local economies. Um, but the other thought that I have, the other point that I, I want to make here um, has to do with the extent to which um, you see you're hearing evidence now. I, I, I like that point that was made about how, how this may be perceived by younger generations. 
This is also the generation that's come of age in the public discourse of the Sanders campaign. By that, I mean they have received a healthy dose of the claims made by the Sanders campaign, which uh, resonate in a way that point exactly to what's taking place here. There was a, a report just recently that indicated that in the midst of the inflation and the economic woes, you're seeing record corporate profits taking place, right? Um, which may be somewhat different from what we saw in the past. And then we've seen over the years, this is something that the social, science, social scientists have documented, that productivity, workers' productivity has been increasing since the 1970s, right? Um, but wages have been declining, and then you add to that now uh, this issue of inflation. So in the, among the list of, of, of uh, unknowns to keep our eyes on, it will be, I think, the way that this younger demographic uh, choose to vote, align their vote with the various arguments that will be exposed to them or that have been exposed to them as they become informed voters. All right. Before we run out of time, and Renee, let's right now commit to doing an entire show on the subject I want to ask you about because it's worth worth it, and we only have a few minutes today. There's been a lot of conversation over ever since really the 2020 elections that Hispanic voters are moving more and more toward the Republican Party. CNN uh, uh, wrote a really interesting, published a really interesting piece about one county in Texas, uh, the most Hispanic county in Texas, Star County. Back Joe Biden by five points in 2020, but in in 2016 they voted for Hillary Clinton by 60 points, and they you know they suggest that, that Texas is an example of how the Hispanic communities across the country are moving more toward the Republican Party. Your thoughts on that? Well, it is very complex to do in three minutes that I see the three minutes flat <laughs> oh, oh, my goodness. Well, we're going to work. We're going to do a whole show. Whoa. We will do a whole show on that. <laughs> Listen, I, 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 I get it. It, it is. Look, um, both the Democrats and the Republicans have done a terrible job in in their messaging to the Latino community. Both have framed the Latino community as being one of Spanish-dominant, recently-arrived immigrant. Those days have completely gone. The What we're calling Latino 1.5, which are children who immigrated to the U.S. under the age of 10 and are English-preferred and are largely Americanized, right, in that they have gone to public school, et cetera, et cetera, and 2.0, the sons and daughters of immigrants who are American and do prefer to do everything in English are largely left out of the entire discourse. So when Latinos and Democrats are speaking to Hispanics, they do it in Spanish and they think that that's it. Well, they're missing the boat entirely. Right. Because the English dominant Latinos who actually vote are like, that's not me. That's not that's my parents. That's my grandparents. That's my great grandparents. Right. Um, When you do see the cultural shift of how Latinos have voted, you know, I mean, I grew up in a Reagan Republican household in southern Arizona. Right. Reagan, you know, uh, he 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 let immigrants in. Right. Uh, uh, Six million. And that largely put him in the good graces of Latinos back then, right? Now, okay, I'm getting the, uh, let's just say that it's complex, it's interesting, and the party that figures it out is going to be one party that will forever get the Hispanic vote. Okay, we got about 30 seconds. Will you work with me on making sure we can do an entire show? Because it's a fascinating conversation. Yes. 
Yes. D. <laughs> okay, that's all. <laughs> Renee, Renee Alegria, Patricia Murphy, Kurt Young. What a great way, really, to start the week. Thank you for a wonderful conversation. We're way out of time for today's show. We'll be back again uh, tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nigat. Take care and stay healthy. Bye, everybody. <laughs>